Well, morning, everyone. Um, we're finding our reading in John chapter 3 today. Uh, John chapter 3, the famous uh, incident about the Pharisee called Nicodemus, uh, who came for a discussion with the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read John chapter 3 um, at verse number 1. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can somebody be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know. We testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. May God's word touch our hearts as we think about it today. We're going to be thinking this morning about the great subject of being born again, or spiritual rebirth, or being born from heaven, or another way of putting it is being regenerated. Now all that comes out of this conversation that we've just read between the Pharisee um, Nicodemus and, and Jesus. Now one of the features of John's gospel is that there are lots of conversations It's a bit different than, for instance, Mark's gospel, where you have a lot of things happening, fast-paced. But there are lots of discussions, lots of discourses, lots of conversations that take place throughout the whole course of John's gospel. And this is the first one. And it's not without significance that the topic of this very first conversation which finds itself right at the start, right at the head, if you like, of the book, is a conversation about spiritual rebirth. And so it's important for us 
obviously, to really grasp this. That's the whole point of it being here at the beginning, so that we can understand how crucial this subject is about being born again. Now, as you look at the verses here, um, we find that Nicodemus was one of the kind of religious uh, elite. He's a, he's a Pharisee, part of a very strict religious group devoted to studying the Bible and to interpreting it and to teaching it and to try and live it out. They often found themselves, of course, in conflict with Christ because of their very kind of legalistic approach to it, but they were committed to it. And in addition to being a Pharisee, uh, he was a member, as you can see there, of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. Only 70 men comprised this, and they had great authority as far as the religious life uh, of the nation of Israel uh, was concerned. And it was this group that eventually Jesus stood before as part of his religious trial uh, prior to his crucifixion. Nicodemus was a member of this. And in fact, he was one of the top men. And we know that uh, because... Uh, in verse number nine, sorry, in verse number ten, Jesus, as part of the conversation, says this to him: "You are Israel's teacher." In fact, what it really says is, "You are the teacher in Israel." He's a top man. Lots of teachers, all these synagogues dotted round about all the little towns and villages, and he was the main man. He was the master teacher. Above everybody else, he was the professor, he was the dawn. And, and this is the man who chooses to come to the Lord Jesus because there are things that he doesn't quite understand. Now he comes with his own question, but he also comes as a kind of representative of the rest of the Pharisees. That's why he says in verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. And that's why when Jesus uh, replies to him down in verse 11, he says, you know, but still you people don't accept our testimony. He's actually there representing part of this ruling group, um, the, San, the Sanhedrin. And... Uh, he comes at night uh, under the cover of darkness. It's a bit of a kind of clandestine, covert type of operation here. He's shoveled in the back door somewhere in downtown Jerusalem. And this meeting has been set up, this conversation between this top Pharisee and the Lord Jesus Christ. Despite all he has... He's not born again. Despite all his religious background, he's not a member of the kingdom of God. And there are things that he wants to discuss, but he doesn't want to be seen to be discussing it. He doesn't come in the glare of the middle of the day, uh, a little bit like his compatriot and his colleague Joseph of Arimathea, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin, he was a secret disciple, Joseph, because of fear of the Jews. And this man is fearful as well, and he wants to slip under the radar 
And that's why he comes uh, at night. Um, you know, that's a point, really, isn't it, for us to think about. Uh, some of us are maybe not just quite so upfront and open because of fearfulness regarding our faith in Christ as we should be. And we need to stand up um, and not be secret and not do things under the cover of darkness, so to speak. Nicodemus at this stage does this. And he's come to a kind of conclusion. And um, it's complimentary what he says about Jesus, but it's not accurate. He says, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. He refers to him as, as a rabbi who's a teacher who has come from God. Nobody could be doing these miraculous signs unless God is with him. Now, the point is this, that, that Jesus knows his heart. And he addresses an issue that is an unspoken issue, as far as Nicodemus is concerned. But it is the issue that's on his mind. And, and we know that because... Just before we took up our reading in verse 1 there, if you backed up to the last couple of verses of chapter 2 that we referred to last week, there are a couple of things that are being said there. Number one is this, that Jesus knew what was in the heart of each man. Okay? And secondly, that there were many people who were believing in the name of Jesus when they saw the miraculous signs, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. So the two points are these. Sometimes people can believe or say that they believe, but there are different kinds of belief. Some belief is not real belief in Christ. There was a, a superficial level of belief that many had, and, and even Nicodemus has. We, we know certain things about you. We're quite accepted of that. But on deeper probing, we'll find that this is not real belief as it should be. He's only believing that Christ is a rabbi and a teacher. The whole thrust and point of the Gospel of John is to bring us all to the conclusion that he's the Son of God, and that by believing him as the Son of God... We have life in his name. And so that's why, you know, it seems as though there's a shift. And what the Lord Jesus says in verse 3 doesn't seem to be connected. But it's because he's reading his mind and he knows what's in his heart. And he knows why he has really come. And he's wanting to know about the kingdom of God. And how can I know that I'm part of that kingdom? How can I know that... I can receive peace with God and acceptance from God that God will forgive my sins, will cleanse my sins, and at the end of my life, you know, that I will be welcomed into God's presence. How can, how can I know that about the kingdom of God? That's in his heart. And that's why when the Lord Jesus answers in verse 3, he says, here's the truth. Here's the truth. Very truly, I tell you that nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's a necessity. You must, as he says later on down in verse 7, you must be born 
again. Something must happen to you, Nicodemus. You have to be regenerated. Now, we have to understand what this means. Jesus is not talking about reincarnation when he talks about being born again. You know, accepted in many places in our world. The Bible says nothing about that. When anybody dies, their soul either goes to the presence of God in heaven, if they're a believer in Christ, or it is separated from God in hell for, for eternity. There, there is no such thing in the Bible as reincarnation. And being born again doesn't refer to that. Doesn't talk, and, it's, and it also doesn't mean just kind of you know, starting all over again, you know, right, like the phoenix rising from the ashes, you know, life has been tough, I've had a whole lot of difficulties and I've been beaten down, but, you know, I'm going to be born again and we're going to give it another shot. Um, It doesn't talk about that. That's not what is meant by that at all. He's talking about a new life, a new type of life and a quality of life That can be the experience of anybody who has faith in Christ. Later on, it's referred to as eternal life. The life of God that comes within a person at that point of faith. When the Spirit of God actually indwells somebody. Because that's one of the ways in which we define what a Christian is. You know, a Christian is someone who possesses the Spirit of God. At the point of faith. The Spirit of God indwells an individual and and gives them the cleansing from their sin and the forgiveness that I referred to earlier on. That is new birth. That is being born from above. It is being regenerated. Now, that's not something that I can do. You know, the figure of speech is deliberately chosen by Christ. You know, for instance, if we were to think about being born naturally, you know, did I contribute to my birth? Did I think, I think I would like to be born into this family? Did I would like to be born on this day? You know, and I, of course not. You know, we had, we had no contribution. We had no involvement as far as our natural birth was concerned. And we have no involvement from the point of view of our spirit, any spiritual birth either. It is a work of God. God does this. Now that was something that went against the grain as far as uh, Nicodemus and the Pharisees were concerned. How, how can this be, he says? doesn't really grasp it. can't really understand it. How can this possibly be? You know, he's a bright man. He's a top man. He understands many things. But the big problem about organized religion is that it it confuses things in people's minds and in particular it, it feeds this line to folks that I can do something that will cause the benefits of God's salvation to be enjoyed by me that I can somehow or another you know perform this list of requirements or keep this list of of, of, of points that are of morality and, and by doing all of that that will be, that will be acceptable and, 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 and religion has always said that and yet Jesus is saying no you need to be born 
spiritually reborn, and only God can do that. And he uses a second analogy really to make the point. And he says it's like the wind. You know, the wind, you can't create the wind. You can't control the wind. You can't harness the wind. The wind comes from wherever. You you can't tell where it's come from. You can't tell where it's going to. And that's just what it's like when somebody is born of the Spirit. And there's a little word play, actually. Both in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word for wind and spirit is, is similar. And being born of the Spirit is like the effect of the wind. So the point for all of us here is, you know, have I been born of God? Has there been a work of God in my life? Because it's only God himself that can give me that, that new life that regenerates me and changes me completely. I can't work that up. Now, he's struggling. Verse 9. How can this be? Jesus doesn't let the man off the hook. He, he rebukes him. He speaks very straight to Nicodemus. And this is what he says. Listen, you're Israel's teacher. You're the man they look to. You set the curriculum. You're the teacher. And you don't know this. You spend your life reading the Bible. You spend your time poring over all the Old Testament scriptures. And this is new to you. And you haven't got this. And you haven't grasped it. You don't know about the spiritual new birth. I'm shocked. I'm amazed. And he's going to take him to one of the examples. But I want to just kind of build this point up for you a little bit today. And to take you to one or two of the Old Testament scriptures that talk about spiritual new birth. I think we'll get them popped up here. The first one is um, from the book of uh, Ezekiel. And at chapter 36. And I'm going to read a couple of verses that this prophet spoke away back and that this man should have known about. Verse 25 of Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Did you notice that part in John 3? You have to be born of water and of the Spirit. The idea, of course, with water is a symbol of being cleaned, being cleansed, you know, When the Spirit of God comes into a person's life, our sin is cleaned away. And this is used here. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in you. And move you to follow my decrees. You're a teacher in Israel, man. You don't know these things? Go back to Ezekiel 36. You'll find it there. In fact, if you go into Ezekiel 37, you'll find it there too. In a slightly different way. Ezekiel is taken to a valley. See that? This is this famous passage. And on the floor of the valley, verse number 2, 
He sees a great many bones, and they're very dry. And what's the point here? Death. Death Valley. Brittle, dry, dead bones. Here's the question, Ezekiel. Can these bones live? Is it possible for these bones to have life? Of course, the answer eventually is there will be life. The bones come together. And then the breath of God enters into them. And they become a living and moving body and army of people. And there's life. There's regeneration. There's new births. What a powerful picture. On the one hand, dry, dead bones scattered over the floor of the valley. And then all coming together when the Spirit of God, the life, the breath of God enters into them. And from death comes life. Now, now that's all implied in what Jesus is saying here. For me to speak, he says, about birth, about spiritual rebirth, it presupposes death. And that is the reality as far as our existence is concerned. You know, there, there is a deadness about humanity. We, we are all physically alive. We will, we will all physically die, of course. But we can be physically alive and yet at the same time be spiritually dead. You know, that's, that's the message of Ephesians chapter 2. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. And you need to be made alive in Christ. It's the message of Genesis. And the day that you take of the fruit of that tree, you will die. Now that did start. That process began. You know, there was a decay. that The, the, the clock started to tick and death was imminent. But it was more than that. There was a spiritual death and the shutter came down straight off, straight away, right at that moment. And they're cut off from God. And that spiritual death, a distance, a great chasm exists now between humanity and the presence of God. And that is spiritual death. And there's a decay and there's a deadness in all of our souls. There is a corruption in all of our souls. We're dead in our sin. And that's, that's why nothing else can help us. Because what is born of the flesh, now when it says flesh, it's not talking about, you know, it's talking about my corrupt, sinful nature. That can't produce anything. Only God's Spirit can cause the dead bones to live again in my life and in your life as well. And that's why we have Jesus being so straight with the man. Now let me just take you to another passage that he should have been aware, aware of as we, as we bring things to a conclusion. Uh, this time we're looking at uh, Psalm 51. Where David, in verse 10, as part of his prayer, says, Create in me a pure heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. David had committed a terrible sin, murdered a man because of his affair with his wife, 
implicated his army in it, you know, had a whole complicated matrix of deceit and deception and uh, thought he'd got away with the whole sordid affair until God comes and through the prophet Nathan, you know, brings it all home and he's blown away. And this is his psalm, his song, his prayer of confession and repentance. You know, he realizes his life and he says, Lord, what I need is a new heart. I need a new heart to be created, a pure heart, a clean heart to be created within me. I need to be born again. Jesus is looking at him, looking at Nicodemus. Why don't you know this? You teacher in Israel. Why don't we at times get this point as well? Chug along with our religious lives and pop up here on a Sunday morning and do the, the round. And we think we're adding up the brownie points in front of God. We've never had the new birth. The work of God's Spirit. And we're still dead. And the final point, the one that he does mention from the Old Testament Scriptures from Numbers 21 is the serpent on the pole. In fact, we have the second what I call must of the passage here. There are two necessities that are mentioned. The first one is you must be born again. Absolute necessity. Jesus says that to us. It has to happen. Second must is the Son of Man must be lifted up. It's talking about the crucifixion. It's talking about the cross of Christ. This has to happen. This is the only way that new birth can take place. First of all, the Son of Man must be lifted up. In the same way as that bronze serpent was lifted up on the pole, all the people lying around, you know, bitten by, by vipers and the poison, you know, bringing them to the point of death. And the, the message goes out, look up, look, look and you'll live. Look in faith, look in belief and you'll live. Rather than death, there will be life that will come back. You will be born again. You know, he's, it's all there in the Old Testament scripture. Jesus says, you know, as that happened then, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever looks to Him will not perish but will have everlasting life. This is the great conversation that kicks off the book of John right at the head, the priority, the first thing that needs to be talked about. The necessity of the new birth. What happens to Nicodemus, by the way? What happened that night? doesn't tell us, you know, what time it was, when he slipped out the door, when he went away back to his friends, the Pharisees. But we do know, actually, what happened to Nicodemus after this. Whether he took it on board. I don't think he was born again at this particular point. But if you were to turn your Bible over, for instance, to John chapter 7, and look at the end of John chapter 7. You'll see that his name is mentioned again. And uh, 
down at verse 50. They'd sent to arrest Jesus, and they came back without him. Why haven't you brought him? Never, never man spoke like this man. You know, tremendous teaching. And then the Sanhedrin, these 70 Pharisees, say, have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? And then Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, says, what? Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? He he begins to tentatively stand up for Christ and say something in the middle of the Sanhedrin. And he's shot down in flames. What happens to Nicodemus? This conversation with Christ still running round in his mind. And we meet him once more in the Gospel of John over in chapter 19 and down at verse 39. Jesus has died. The crucifixion has taken place. The Sanhedrin were instrumental in all of that. And yet here are two of them. These two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Notice it says here, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. He's stepping out of the darkness. He's he's stepping out of the shadows into the glare of public scrutiny. And people now know exactly where he stands and what he believes and what is important and who is important. And with Joseph, he takes down the body of Christ from the cross and he wraps it in linen and anoints it with these spices and they carry the body of Christ to Joseph's new tomb. And here we know where the story ends for Nicodemus. Born again. New birth. Regenerated. Standing for Christ. And that's the message that comes to all of us here this morning. Two necessities. One necessity has taken place already. The Son of Man has been lifted up. The second necessity, well, that's our response. We must be born again. A new heart has to be created. If we look to him, if we believe, we will not perish, but we'll have everlasting life. Shall we pray? Lord, help us to take to heart the words and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as Nicodemus did. Help us not to remain in his shadows, to come out of the darkness, to take our stand with Christ and have faith in him, and to receive your work in our hearts that these dead bones can live again. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and the children who have learned your word today as well. Lord, may we all experience your life in our souls as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.